0: Subscribe and rate it five stars. Bigfoot and beyond. The greatest podcast ever. You're listening or watching. Remember, always keep it squatchy. Yeah. And now your hosts, Cliff Bergman and James Bobo Fay. Hello, Cliff. Hello, Bobo. How are you today? Not too shabby. How's it going with you? Not too shabby either, and shabby's kind of been my M.O. lately, but uh, today's not that bad. There's been a lot of incoming um, artillery from stress bombs lately and things, but I've been managing my life pretty well, moving forward and trying to breathe deeply. Hey, you've been busy, man, doing those TV
1: shoots and investigating in the museum and being married. I mean, you've
0: been going to conferences. You're you're on the move. Yeah, yeah. It's a l- little bit busier than I care to be at this moment, but, um, you know, You got to surf the waves when they come. I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, make hay when the sun's shining. Exactly. Cool stuff's going on, though. Going to go out to a long-term witness's house this coming week. Um, He's been having, I guess, trouble with the Bigfoots, which is always a good sign. He's had a couple chickens stolen and bites taken out of them, like... um, you know, like apples. He finds the chickens in the middle of a, uh, bramble bush, like on top of the blackberry brambles. Um, and like, there's a big, you know, like a, a bite of an apple, but out of the chicken breast instead. And it was just left there. Um, so weird stuff's going on there. Footprints in the middle of the field, uh, I guess about two weeks ago, but that was when I, I couldn't get out of the house cause I had COVID or whatever back then. So, um, I guess that's more like three weeks ago now, time flies. So anyway, yeah, going to go out there on Monday and Ohio Bigfoot conferences this week, but by the time people hear this, that would have been long gone. So I'm sure it was a great conference. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't I don't pretend to be able to tell the future, but if I could, I, I'd I'd give it a good talking to.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, your day's about to get a lot better because we got a little
0: sunshine from Texas coming our way. Nice. Yeah, I I heard a rumor about this. I cannot wait to have this conversation. You want to do the introduction there? Well, probably the sexiest man in cryptozoology,
1: and uh, he's also the... No, we're talking about first. our guests
0: now, Bobo, not not, not us.
1: Oh, okay. Well, the third most sexy man in cryptozoology, but one of the best writers there is, a good friend, a Texas icon, Lyle Blackburn
0: is here. Lyle is uh, with us today for the second time, even. second. You're, you're, Lyle, you're one of a very rare, small number of folks who have come on our show twice, so, congratulations or or thanks for being a glutton for punishment.
2: Thank you. I, I appreciate that intro and for for the opportunity to come on for the second time. I, I feel very honored. Definitely,
0: <laughs> you should feel honored. Yeah, thanks for being here. It's nice to have you back. And now now. Um... I wanted to reach out to you to ha- and have you back. Of course, we both did because you have a new thing going on. I mean, everybody knows that you're you're a Bigfoot author. I mean, you're by far one of the best authors out there. Your uh, your research is rock solid. Uh, the subject matter you choose is always interesting, whether it's you know um, you know Boggy Creek, obviously, or lizard men, or whatever weird thing you're into. You have a fantastic narrative style to your writing in general that it just feels like you're. You're, you know, you're listening to a friend tell you about what's going on, whether they know you or not, uh, your books are fantastic. And now you've translated that essentially into a different format. Um, and it is every bit as good as your books. Um, it's almost, it's almost like, you know, an audiobook. essentially. You have a new podcast. Tell us about the podcast and how did this come about and what, what is your thought on it? Then I'll tell you about mine because I've been listening to it.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like, uh, everybody, um, Who's anybody has a podcast, so I had kind of resisted this, you know, for some time because, you know, when Bobo was listing all the things you do, I felt yes, I understand the the busy busyness of that because I'm kind of the same with juggling different projects and stuff, and and I love you know love writing books and that's very time intensive and then the research and the you know documentation and everything that comes with it. Uh, doing small town monsters documentaries and and what have you, so i've kind of just you know thought well, you know there's a lot of podcasts, and I'm on a lot of podcasts, so you know that's that's doing me fine but o- over time, I felt that uh, it was one area where I could offer something and being that I had done the narration for I think eight small town monsters documentaries now. You know, I kind of had the voice thing, and I thought, you know, if I do a podcast, I could I could do it a little different, and and not and try to add something uh, of my own with my own stamp. So the podcast is called Monstro Bizarro, and that name came from a column I did for about a decade for the horror magazine Rue Morgue, and I wrote for them specializing in cryptid stories because. They, you know, it's it's a horror magazine, but they love the cryptid thing. And, of course, cryptids pop up in horror magazines. And then I was sort of the bridge between, you know, what what is in these sort of fictionalized and sensationalized cryptid movies and the actual research of cryptids. I mean, because to me, it's always spooky and cool when people say, you know, in real life, I saw this, you know, seven foot tall hair covered beast in the forest, you know. Very, very shocking and and uh, amazing. So anyway, so I took the Monstro Bizarro title from that. And so the podcast is essentially just me. I don't interview people or, or any of that. And I basically, um, in a way, narrate or do sort of a audio version of various cases. And of course, I've got a long list of things I can cover. and And I can sort of then bring... The things I've done in the books and and elsewhere into a different format where people can, you know, if they want to just sit back and relax and listen, I just give about forty minutes of of this tale, and and I try to I've tried to add some audio effects, um, you know, a cool theme song, and then some, you know, some background effects to kind of give it a little bit of that sort of visual audio feel. It's like. In a way, I was like, okay, it's like a small town monsters documentary, a cryptid documentary, but it's just audio. You know what it reminded me
0: of is, uh, you know how some some books, uh, fiction books, fit really well into the the sort of radio play format, or you know, like they did this, that sort of thing with the uh, Lord of the Rings back in the day, and the BBC put on a radio sort of play, like a, where the, the characters would be speaking, you know, that sort of thing. Yours is the nonfiction book version of that. You know, like what you're saying are, are facts and whatever else, uh, and and with the sound effects peppered in there, you're you're essentially doing a radio play of a nonfiction book in a way, and it felt it felt like yeah, your storytelling. I'm am along there with the characters, but from the narrator's point of view, I thought it was just a fantastic perspective
2: and a take on this on the podcast thing. Yes, yeah, that's that's kind of the exact vibe, and almost the more I started working on developing you know production developing i was like yeah it's kind of like an old radio show you know i remember hearing the the war of the worlds or something where they dramatized stuff and in the upcoming ones i do have a little bit of like reenactment type stuff where i'm experimenting a little bit more with you know i mean i'm talking straight for the entirety but that way i can pepper it with some some of that yeah like a radio play and it's it's based on literally you know, actual things that were reported or happened. So that, that is the vibe. And I hope in the future, you know, as this kind of gets rolling more, I could add a little more of that production value uh, to each of the episodes. Do you
1: have, do you have females do the female parts? Or is this you like reading different voices?
2: Well, I thought, yeah, I could do like a Monty Python thing where I just pretended I was a female, but it didn't work. No, no. Uh, But no, I, I, I actually uh, in the in the second one I did use a female voice and uh, you know sort of ask friends, hey, do you think you could sound like you know whatever I'm trying to accomplish? And um, so yeah, that that was one thing, you know. And or if I'm playing the part of a newscaster, you could tell even if I pretended it, it just was my voice. So I am kind yeah. of pulling in other people just as to do a little thing so that's kind of fun because you know it can just you know bring in some other talent i guess
0: well you'd almost have to
1: yeah i think i just want to say lyle your your podcast is going to be huge i have no doubt it's going to be a giant success
0: oh yeah yeah it's high quality the production is great um it's everything somebody would want in a podcast unless of course you want guests you know, but there's plenty of. I mean, we do guests. You're a guest, for example. Um, you know, there's uh, you know West does guests on Sasquatch Chronicles constantly. So you know, you're you're offering something new essentially to the the, the podcast platform, um, and I think people are just going to eat it up.
2: Right, and and that's kind of what I wanted to do because I mean I'm you know I'm interviewed on quite a number of shows. I thought well there that exists already and there's a lot of fine podcasts yours and and other ones where they do that format so i thought well what can i do that's unique or offering something different so that's kind of why i did that and you know it takes longer to prepare them but you know in a way they're they're sort of eternal you know you just you know if you just now get into whatever that monster is you can go and listen to that podcast and it it brings you up to date on the story and the, uh, the first episode was on the Lake Worth monster, which is a strange cryptid tale from 1969 that occurred very close to where I live in Texas. And I know a lot about it, and I've written about it, and I thought that's a perfect one to kind of kick off the the podcast. And so far, I mean, literally every comment and, and pra- a lot of praise for what I was doing, people really liked it. so you know, I want to bring some quality. So I think so far the feedback has been just excellent.
0: Well, I can totally see why. Um, even the introduction, I, I was kind of giggling to myself. Um, I don't even know what you'd call that, you know, the splash at the beginning of the podcast, like identifying it as Monstro Bizarro. It sounded to me like a 1950s, it was clearly influenced in some way by like a 19, 1950s, 60s sort of Twilight Zone 20th century space age sort of feel to it I, I just loved it I was just giggling and saying like, this is already cool and he hasn't even started yet
2: right oh I was totally that that was the vibe you know I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan Rod Serling and and in search of just that sort of um, voicing that they did so in the you know the theme song that was done by Brandon Dalo that he does the music for the small town monsters productions uh, he got that sort of old-school, creepy-sounding uh, thing, and I, I created that. So, in a way, as I started doing it, it was sort of like I could use Monstro Bizarro as sort of like the Twilight Zone. I was like, you know, it could only happen in Monstro Bizarro. <laughs> Living out like a childhood dream or something of yours to be the narrator for that. Totally. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm digging this, and it's uh, it's got all those cool things I love, you know, cryptids, uh, you know, Twilight Zone, In Search of all of it. The only thing I think
0: it's actually missing at this point is theremin. You need to have oh, a theremin yeah. in there somewhere. How cool would that be?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely gonna gonna be in there. You know, if I do something that's a little more bizarre, then that's surely got to use the theremin uh, sound effect.
0: Yeah, I'm not the guy in the back of the hall yelling more cowbell. I'm the guy in the back of the hall yelling more theremin, more theremin. Yeah, I'm actually
1: working on a, a little tidbit for the show something we can put at the end of the show that involves on our for like a weekly thing on our show that has a theremin in it no kidding
0: you didn't tell me about that nice i like surprises uh, you're gonna be surprised well you know Bob. that's why you're my partner in this i just love surprises <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah that sounds cool i mean that's the fun thing about these podcasts you know you can come up with an idea and you can produce it and do it you know it's there's not a lot of middlemen or uh hoops to jump through if you if you've got something it you know it it can be done and it's it's fun to play in all those ideas.
0: Is this your your production only or do you pull it I mean I know that you mentioned the music is done by an outside source, et cetera. And you're gonna bring in some like voice actors and that sort of thing. But are you is this a self-contained Lyle Blackburn sort of production?
2: Yes, pretty much. Um I, I have a friend that uh sort of I bounced off you know played him a couple of the early versions of it and you know sort of feedback thing and levels and and stuff but i mean i sat here and and voiced it all and recorded it and i put in the sound effects and i mean in in one case like i think it, i don't know if it's in the first one or the second one but i actually played a little keyboard in the background to give it a a a little drone effect so i mean i was actually playing instruments and stuff so it's it's all just me
0: I'm curious about the um production process. Like how, how do you uh, how do you start like from from choosing the topic to doing the research to the recording process to post-production to release. Like what what do you actually have to go through for this 45-minute episode?
2: Well, yeah, it's it's quite a process because the first thing is, you know, picking the subject and trying to think of something that I know a lot about or have done some, you know, I like I like it when I've done some active research on it and then something that that I, I can offer something new. You know, I don't, I don't want to just read out of the books because if people have read the books, they, you know, then they're hearing the same thing. So I kind of reformulate it. So once once I know what I'm writing about, then I write basically a script. And, you know, I figured out how many pages it takes to sort of fill that that time frame. And once I get the script written, then I go and record it you know, reading it just as uh, I would narrating a film or anything else. And oftentimes, you know, I run into where "Ah, I don't like that wording or it's funky or whatever. So then I kind of got to go back, tweak the script and then perform the the audio. And then of course, you know, there's mess ups and stuff. So then I got to go back and edit out um, any mistakes. And then from there, I start dropping in the the sound effects I say I have a bank of just sound effects and stuff that I have or like in some cases I went out and literally have recorded cricket noises and stuff in the woods and uh, just made it as I go where I think I need it and then so I put in the effects and then you know then play it back and listen to it tweak the levels and do all that so it it, yeah it takes it takes longer uh, than you know if I was just a I guess to do sort of an interview style, but uh, but it you know again I, I want to do something that's quality, and I think in the tradition of what I've done with the books and being involved with Seth Breedlove and his his movies, everything it's like okay, well if I'm going to do something, especially at this point, it has to be next level. So that's why I don't mind spending the extra time. It's and then when you get the feedback, you're like okay, yeah, people people like it, so it's cool.
0: Yeah, people don't realize how much work goes into any pod, I mean, even this podcast. And like most listeners oh, just Cliff and Bobo talking. And for the most part it is, but Cliff and Bobo talk for an hour and a half. And then our, our producer, Matt Prue, gets a hold of it. Goes through that hour and a half, he has to listen to it three times to get down to the appropriate forty-five minutes to an hour length taking out like ums and ahs or stupid things that we say. So an hour and a half, what is that? That's three, four, four and a half, five hours of work to produce a 45-minute simple podcast. Your workload just must be tremendous. How how much time did it take to produce
2: that first episode? You know, I was trying to sort of keep track, and I'm sure I'll get faster, but I want to say right now my estimation is it will take me two weeks to create one based on my work. You know, and that's kind of juggling with... The other daily stuff I've got to do, but yeah, it's like half a month just to produce one. Because at first I was going to start bi-monthly, but then I realized, okay, wait, I'm just going to start. I'm going to promise only per month because I've got all this. I'm like you. I'm doing events and appearances, and you know, I'm also writing a book as I'm doing this and other things. So, uh, but yeah, it's about two weeks. So I can probably get it down to maybe one week, but that's a whole week worth of work for that.
1: Your fans are going to demand it. I'll bet bet just knowing how this is going and how you are, I I imagine you're going to be doing more just because it's going to get more lucrative for you because it'll be uh, worthwhile for you to start dropping out of other stuff just to focus on your podcast because it's going to be a hit. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music.
2: Sonidos of our voices.
1: Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora.
0: And the subject matter that you're tackling, I'm, I've only I've only listened to one. I listened to the Lake Worth Monster one, which I think is fantastic and a, a, an amazing kickoff episode because that case has been largely ignored, um, I, I feel at least, uh, as far as like the Bigfoot history buffs go. Um, a few people have paid attention. I mean, you, know, you obviously have. I know um, um, Will Heater did some stuff. Dan Perez, for example, Daniel Perez, so, and probably a handful of other people I'm unaware of. But I don't really think that that case gets enough attention. So I was so excited. I learned stuff about it. I was so excited to, to listen to your story about it. Can, can you tell us about that particular case and what people can at least look forward to when they listen to your first episode?
2: Right. So, yeah, that is one that uh, I've always been fascinated with because there's there's quite a bit to the case. And, you know, that makes always makes a better story. And, you know, it has a name. You know, the creature was given a name. There's newspaper articles. And essentially, what happened in the summer of 1969, couples were out at this area around Lake Worth. And that is located... Um, close to Fort Worth, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I, that's where I, w- I was born in Fort Worth and lived here. Uh, back in 1969, the area around Lake Worth was sort of a lover's lane hangout. You know, dirt roads and, you know, no adults and things. And, and you know, people of really all ages would go there and hang out or, or do whatever they were doing. So on uh, July 10th, 1969, some couples were out there and, you know, hanging out. And and this thing jumped on their car and tried to grab this guy's wife, essentially. And they managed to start up the car and drive away. And they went to a local cafe where they called the police. So the police responded. And, you know, these people are saying, you know, I don't know what it was. This thing, you know, came out of the woods and, and jumped on the car and it looked like it was hairy. They said, we, we think it, it had horns. Um, we don't know what it was. And so, you know, obviously in a place, in a, in a position like that, they're not, you know, they didn't have a great description, but um, that made the newspaper the next day, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram journalist named Jim Mars wrote it up as fishy goat man attacks couple at Lake Worth.
0: I love that. Like, that alone is that why wasn't that the title of the episode Fishy uh-huh. goat, <laughs> uh-huh.
2: goat Man I know which has kind of become this a confusing aspect of it because the, that that initial newspaper article is like, what the is this you know it was it was very bizarre, so when it was in the paper, so back in those days, you know it wasn't the paper was the thing, so a lot of people read that, and the following day had gathered out there in this area called Greer Island where that happened by Lake Worth. And essentially uh, later that evening, at least 30 people saw with their own eyes, witness this thing run up on a ridge and it grabbed a tire and tossed it over the crowd and ran off into the woods. And, People, of course, scattered and ran and it freaked them out. And, you know, it was just this crazy thing, which, of course, was in the paper the the following day, which ramped up the whole story. And then other witnesses started coming forward in the days following that and so forth. And people began to describe it as more like a white Bigfoot, essentially. They said this thing is stands upright, six or seven feet tall. It's covered in white hair. Many of them said it looks kind of like an ape. And it left footprints, just, you know, as we see in these Bigfoot cases. And so, you know, the initial thing was it's a goat man. But as you listen to these witnesses, then you see that, uh, you know, to me, it was more likely a Bigfoot. And then over the next several months, somebody even took a picture of something out there um were surprised when it stood up and they took this kind of fuzzy blurry photo but it shows some sort of whitish thing and this is a i mean basically it was a bigfoot picture in 1969 this was early early stuff yeah i think it's
0: i think it's legit yeah it's one of the ones we all grew up on but going to the library and like that's one of the pictures i remember from when i would go to the library and look up bigfoot books when i was eight yeah i always thought it was legit too.
2: Right, and I was never able to interview the guy who took the picture personally, but I know a a journalist here that has, and other people that have spoken to him, and all all that sort of stuff, but he legitimately, it wasn't a hoax, like he took a picture of whatever it was that stood up, I mean, not saying he couldn't have been hoaxed by something, but he wasn't perpetrating a hoax, that's a given. And so, there was a book actually written by a would-be writer named Sally Ann Clark, who lived in this area, and she wrote a book that she self-published before the end of 1969, which was a feat unto itself. And that book was kind of highly collectible. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it on eBay for hundred bucks, and but anyway, so so it's it's a really cool story, and it kind of you know because it was kind of a famous Texas cryptid case or whatever it was. Um, it's lasted over the years. Plus, there was the book. And so I thought it's a good way to start because you know people like oh you know hope you do a boggy creek case well I've written so much on that I wanted to come out offering something that was a little different I've written on the Lake Worth monster in one of the books but it, I didn't have the chance to fully explore it like I did now so that way I could offer here's the definitive story here's all the stuff that happened here's my observations I have interviewed people who were standing up on that ridge who said they saw the thing walk off into the woods and said it was upright, it was walking on two legs, and it didn't look like a human. So there's very little doubt that like many of
0: these uh, um, occurrences did actually occur. They went through the formality actually occurring. Um, this, these aren't just stories and newspaper articles kind of blowing things out of proportion. You know for a fact, or at least as, that these people are at least saying that, yeah, I, wa- I saw that, and it correlates with the newspaper articles for the time.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, think of any other Bigfoot case where you have 30 to 40 witnesses. So, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that something was up there on the ridge. Uh, to me, it always it just comes down to it was either an unknown animal or a hoax, but it wasn't hallucination, it wasn't sensational journalism, any any of that. You can just rule it right out because these people saw the thing and many people saw had quite a good look at it and claimed it was some sort of ape-like creature.
0: Yeah, and I, I can't imagine Texas was all that different back in 69, man. type You would be taking your life in your hands to walk around a ridge in an ape suit in front of 30 or 40 people because out of 30 or 40 people, there had to be like 50 or 60 guns there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I have a friend uh, named Bill Morris who I met I was on Monsters and Mysteries in America when they did a Lake Worth monster segment and Bill Morris was at that filming and I met him and got to be friends and he, he was there during all that stuff and he assured me, he said there were a lot of people there with guns. I mean, yeah, it's Texas and there was even some Fort Worth police officers in, in the area. I don't know if any of them saw it, but they were on site. So yeah, if you're going to dress up in a suit, you, you gotta you gotta be pretty brave to do that. And plus it's
0: hot down there.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's hot too. What
0: time of year was all this again?
2: Yeah, it was July, um July. middle of you know middle of summer and it yeah it would have been upwards of a hundred degrees outside. So that would have been a huge problem. And and you know and also I always think and, and that's a whole other thing I explained in the podcast. There was people that came forward claiming that they were the Lake Worth monster and, you know, a lady said it was my brothers. They dressed in a, a white Tarzan outfit with mascara and they were doing like uh, zip lines across people's car. It, it's a, it's just nuts. I mean, I'm like, that sounds weirder than, than a cryptid, you know, but you know, in 1969, where do you go and buy a white Bigfoot suit? You don't, they had yeah, don't maybe a gorilla suit, but those are going to be Brown or black. They're, they didn't, you know, they weren't making Yeti suits and other things back then that were white. So I, you know, it would well, have been you a, could buy one. In, you could buy one in Lake Worth, I guess. <laughs> apparently so. So you know, <laughs> unless you were in Lake Worth, you could not get, get a white man. <laughs> so listening to the podcast, I was surprised that
0: there's actually other goat man sightings. I didn't. I wasn't aware of this. I'm, a, I'm kind of Bigfoot centric. I don't. I only focus on that subject. So when you came out it says, yeah, other people were actually reporting seeing goat men. Thinking, what in the world is that, man? What, what what's going on with that? Anything at all, or is it just a, um, a, a, an inflation of uh, somebody's fear translated into words?
2: Well, yeah, the goat man thing sort of it, it, to me it falls somewhere between cryptid and urban legend and in that case where that first newspaper article used the the name goat man that gave it that, that spin. So during the podcast, you know, I kind of talk about, you know, okay, is this a Bigfoot or is it what people refer to as a goat man? And that's a kind of a, you know, a, a small section of cryptids, if you will, in which people report seeing some kind of, uh, entity that looks goat-like and that could be it stands upright it has horns it's human-like yet it's covered in white hair and it may have hooves or you know uh, that that kind of a look and if you start looking at sort of stories that come from areas around the country you always have this sort of like well there's a goat man that lives in the woods and usually um, it's centered around bridges, which is, an, is a sort of a common denominator in a lot of these. But to me, it, it, it always was sort of like that thing where, you know, back in high school, it's like it was always some rural area and people, oh, don't go out there, you know, to Screaming Bridge because there's a goat man. It was always sort of, to me, urban legend rather than, well, I mean, what what biological sense are we making out of a goat man, you know? not that there aren't strange things in the world but to me the lake worth case leaned much more towards bigfoot than goatman but but that is in the conversation because even now people will refer to it as the lake worth goatman mm-hmm. and so yeah there's there's other famous like the poplick monster of kentucky it's a sort of a goatman thing out by louisville there's the maryland goatman which is another famous uh, Goatman case, and I've even got a few Goatman reports over the years, but uh, they're they're very few and far between. Some of these, to me, there there's legitimately there were goat farmers who lived um, in areas, and they would sort of be fictionalized or something, and and so the story would start as a goat farmer, but then it would turn into this. Well, there's a goat man that lives out there, and it would sort of take this monstrous spin. So. Again, that's why I say it's sort of like there was these strange urban legends meets cryptids.
0: Yeah, I'll just add that to the long and growing list of things that I hope are not real. Yeah. <laughs> do, what do you make of
1: all that stuff, Lyle? Like when they're like, because it took me forever to even come to the conclusion that people are seeing not just Bigfoots. I always thought every one of those things was like a misidentification of it. Like, you know, especially I wanted to ask you about this because you're in Texas. You're, you know, it's like the heart of it is. Like Dog Man specifically, but these other Goat Man or whatever Mans, you know, like
2: right? Yeah, you, you know, that those are always harder to explain or to to get a grasp on. You know, Bigfoot to me makes a lot of sense. You know, you can you can see a, bio, a biological reality in that. You know, it it uh, you know we have similar, perhaps. You know, you can look at gorillas or or apes, and then, you know, our own selves, our own image. Okay, that makes sense. But when you start getting into, well, you know, a goat man, or a lizard man, or a dog man, we're starting to get into realms where it may not make as much sense as far as natural nature, you know, and, and those are harder to rationalize. But the, but the bottom line is, some of those reports, you know, are like any of them, they they could be misconstrued, misidentification, but there, there's a good number of them that are coming from people who are seemingly credible. They had a fairly good look at whatever it was, and if they say they saw an upright bipedal canid of some sort, well, you know, you can't just dismiss that out of hand. I mean, you know, and and, and where I come from, I, I, you know, mostly have done Bigfoot stuff, but I I'm interested in all cryptids and we'll look at the other cases in the reports and there's a lot of cool stories. Um But yeah, I don't know how, how sometimes to, to rationalize a goat man. And if I, but if I got a report and it seemed like a credible person, then I would just chalk that up as to, Hey man, there's, there's things in this world that we just simply can't explain. And I may not have an answer, but that doesn't mean that this person didn't see what they said they saw.
1: Do you got any theories on what it is? Like, uh, what these people are seeing, like, or why
2: they're seeing it? I don't have any solid theories, I guess. Um, and i've talked to a number of people who do more research say say with dogman, and most of the time I find that they their theory is that the creatures are not totally of this world, you know whether they 're interdimensional or have some supernatural aspect. most of the time they feel that you know there's got to be some some other explanation and because a lot of times these you know dogman sightings can be much closer to civilization much closer to towns or cities than i guess the general amount of bigfoot sightings but you know for me it's like well i don't want to be closed minded and I, i'm very open minded so i mean I, I can't say that they're not some kind of thing that we don't understand you know it just boils it boils down to to me i'm more a bit more of A documentary kind of guy just sort of the John Green of of this where I take the reports and if I feel like it's credible I document it I tell what it is but I don't profess to have all the answers as to what it is it's just wow this is strange and usual scary spooky and and cool but heck I, I can't make total sense of it sometimes.
0: I think we're all on the same page on, on that one. Now, did you find yourself arriving at that same position of like, I don't know what's going on, but something is. These people seem to be telling the truth. Did you arrive at that same position um, while doing your research for your your lizard man book, your you know reptilians or whatever you want to call those things?
2: What I kind of came to the conclusion in, in that case was that I felt that some of the witnesses didn't get quite a good enough look at it. Well, the first, the, the Christopher Davis, kind of the famous guy that was attacked or whatever, he never said lizard man, but the locals were calling it that. So I don't know if that helped to shape what they perceived this thing to be. But when you come down to it, and I looked at some of the police reports where the sheriff had the Wherewithal to have these people sit down and write down what they saw at the time that you know back then, not a recollection later, on the paper right there it said it looked brown. One of them said it looked like a sasquatch, and and many of the other witnesses said it looked brownish or green, and it was it's in a swampy area. I thought, well, not to downplay lizard men, but it could simply be an algae covered Bigfoot coming up out of the swamp. And when seen in the moonlight, it looks shiny or scaly or just very strange or even greenish. So my speculation there was that it could be that those people were seeing a Bigfoot and the local nomenclature just called it a lizard man. And therefore that sort of stuck and became sort of the image. But it's hard to explain one cryptid with another cryptid it really starts getting
0: right (laughs) it gets a little convoluted yeah yeah john green actually said don't we shouldn't try to explain one unknown with another stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages So um your second episode of Monstro Bizarro um is on what? I have not had a chance to listen to it yet. I look it's out.
2: So yeah, the second episode will be coming soon and that one is on a, another strange case and this one I call the Terror of Teague. And the Terror of Teague takes place in Teague, Texas. Again, I'm in Texas, but uh, this was one I chose more for the content because again, I wanted to throw in some cases that weren't necessarily straight from my book and something that was kind of new and different. And in this case, people in the small town of Teague saw some kind of a creepy, scary looking entity walking on two legs from a railroad track up through the local neighborhood. And I actually uh, conversed with a 911 operator who got calls from these people who were scared to death because their kids had come in crying that they had seen this strange creature walking up the street. And the adults went out and in some cases saw this thing and it disappeared up into some abandoned buildings. And the police did actually respond and came out and they didn't see the thing at the time, but uh, there were some subsequent sightings and things like that. So this was one where I had sort of a sensational 911 call. You know, you don't always get that either, where it's a cryptid case, somebody called 911, seeing, you know, reporting a monster. So I thought this is a cool one. Um, I investigated it with my fellow Texan, Ken Gerhard, some years ago, and I've always wanted to talk about the case, but it didn't fall into any of my book um You know anything f- f- I could do in my book, so I thought, okay, here I can finally talk about this in the podcast. So it, again, it it sort of it, it establishes, I think, that my podcast covers all sorts of strange, creepy creatures, and, and not necessarily Bigfoot, because there's going to be plenty of those topics coming up, of course. So I wanted to kind of uh, establish right off the bat, people understand this is just any small town creepy cryptid case that I'll be covering.
0: I love that you're calling it the same name as the that your column in Rue Morgue as well, because Rue Morgue is a very famous um, horror magazine. Um, if you listen to this podcast at all, you know my wife's really into horror m- movies and whatnot. She knew about the magazine long before she knew about you. You know, like she was she was already interested in the magazine. And when um I saw one laying on the table or she mentioned it one time, I said, oh yeah, you know a friend of mine writes for that. And she go, what? What and actually, Lyle, you kind of bumped me up a few notches in my wife's eyes. Actually, just, just for that one reason alone. So, thank you very much. Um, not that she wasn't a fan of me to begin with. Don't don't get me wrong. <laughs> still, um, because it's not just a bigfoot thing. It is a bigfoot and beyond thing. Kind of, you know, just to rip off our own name here. Yeah, you are. I think probably most famously known for bigfoot things and you know Boggy Creek and all that sort of stuff. But you are a prolific uh, researcher. You're always sticking your nose into something and investigating these, the, these what I like to call folklore, just local stories. Where, and like you said, whether it's true or not, it kind of doesn't matter whether there's a biological reality behind it. It doesn't really matter. You want to see what's up with it. And you go and you're a great interviewer. You, I don't know how you track all these people down. That must be a full-time job in itself. So it, it's neat to see you kind of uh, you know, spread your wings a little bit and stretch your legs and go outside of what other people expect of you. And, you know, from being, I think Bobo would probably agree with this, from being in the public eye in Bigfoot, what people expect of you is Bigfoot. And if you're not doing Bigfoot, they don't understand, you know, because they have these expectations of you. And it's neat to see you kind of uh, go outside the lines a bit.
2: Yes, thank you. And that's that's kind of where I felt I, I needed to be. And, you know, coming from the Rue Morgue thing, where I talked about, you know, everything from cryptid movies to all sorts of... Strange cryptid cases, you know. I felt I was the guy who, you know. Okay, here's horror fans who are reading this stuff. I was the guy who got to pitch cryptids to them because you know usually they've heard of Bigfoot, you know. But you know, I can say, hey, did you know people report seeing what is like a real life werewolf? What about Lizard Man? It's like it's like a creature from the Black Lagoon in modern times. So I always felt I was the guy that could open people's eyes to all these strange things that are reported out there not just bigfoot. And so that's the you know what I wanted to do with the podcast as well and and that way I could yeah I could do the beyond you know if and, and especially if I started out with 5 episodes that were bigfoot then when I suddenly changed to some other weird thing then you know people had a preconceived notion so I thought well the first ones need to be they can be bigfoot like lake worth monster is it's Bigfoot, but it's also has these other elements. And then the second one, like I said, is is not. Um, because there's plenty to do with Bigfoot and I'll definitely do some Boggy Creek stuff and gosh, I have so much Bigfoot stuff I could do. You know, I can't even make enough podcast to cover it all. But um, yeah, I wanted to be different and kind of kind of play into that audience and fan base I have that that's from Rue Morgue and, and other places where they may not follow cryptids or Bigfoot necessarily, but they like what I've produced, and then I can kind of offer them a new format for them to hear more tales.
1: Speaking of fans and all your projects, one of them is Ghoul Town. Did, did you guys
0: survive the pandemic and no live gigs going on for a while? Yeah, Ghoul Town, of course, being your your band, your your rock band, essentially. Yeah, which is kind of a spooky and horror theme to, to begin with. Not only in oh, yeah. name, but you guys were makeup and the 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 side like the, the kind of a uh, like Texas, Texas zombies. like uh, Yeah, yeah, the Texas zombie metal <laughs> sound sort of thing. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool.
2: Yeah, you know, Ghoul Town, we don't play a lot live anyway, so the pandemic was easier for us to weather, you know, as opposed to if if that's what we did full time and depended on touring and everything it would have been rough times and it's still, I notice, you know, bands are still having to occasionally cancel and reschedule. And there's just been so many problems. Luckily, I, you know, I've been in bands and been a musician most of my life. So I'd already kind of scaled back at least the touring part. So during 2020, we actually recorded an album and uh, released that and we, we weren't able to do it, you know, back it up with much touring, but Really at this point, it's that's not been our main goal. We're just kind of more of a recording band and we'll do bigger shows here and there and we've played stuff. So the pandemic didn't really didn't harm us too much. Would you mind
0: if we play a couple moments of uh Ghoul Town for the for the audience here?
2: Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, this song is called Bullets Don't Argue from our latest album, The Curse of El Dorado.
0: A kill on a sidebound train. i on the setting
1: sun. Now the evil bites the dust. A carpet full of dollars. Don't worry, make.
2: You can find Ghoul Town music wherever you can find finer music of course it's on uh you know iTunes and Amazon and and any other platform that you uh stream or download music Spotify everything
0: Do you think a bullet would argue if it had a really good case?
2: <laughs> oh, <Clef! laughs> That that took the cake I uh. believe it could I I believe it could
0: <laughs> That was good <laughs> You can't argue a hollow point for very long, though, can you? Oh, I know, I know. I'm sorry, everybody. We just lost like 20,000 listeners, but we gained like five nerds. Uh, five nerds was (laughs) worth it. You'll get no loss uh, 20,000 people for five nerds. I'd take it any day.
2: (laughs) Nerds have more value, and I've always felt that way. So, yeah, some of these ghoul town, like, like bullets don't argue. I, I took that title from a spaghetti Western. You'll you find these really wacky titles for those Italian made Westerns that were, you know, in, in back in the sixties and early seventies, most people know the good, the bad and the ugly and for a few dollars more and all that, but there was hundreds and hundreds of those movies made. And some of them would just have these wacky titles like, uh, like on our new album, I've got one head, you die tails. I kill you. That's just straight up. I'm like, you know, I just took the time to write some some words, and we "Against a Crooked Sky" was another one, and we have an album called Bury Them Deep." So I, I've kind of borrowed a lot of inspiration from the spaghetti westerns because they just had these cool titles, and I don't even know some. In some cases, I've never even seen the movie, but the titles were so cool, and maybe the movies are good or bad, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a good influence for Gultown. <laughs> That's cool. yeah, the spaghetti
0: Western. I didn't know this until a few years ago, but they, they call it that because they filmed them in Italy, because it was, I guess, yeah. cheaper to film out there as opposed to Hollywood back in the sixties.
2: Right. And I always I know, found right. them to be better because they Hollywood Westerns, you know, there's there's some good ones, but they were always more tame and grandiose. Those those spaghetti westerns were gritty and violent, and they had a sort of a very nice cinematic feel to them. I mean, if anybody's ever seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, it just stands out. Just the way they shot that widescreen, close-ups on the guy's eyes, and they would do gunfights. It just was superior. And there's, like I said, there's tons of spaghetti westerns that I've, I've seen, and they're all just really cool. The, the, the stories and the feel or, I
0: don't know, the tone maybe. There's something about them I can't quite put my finger on, therefore I can't put words on, that remind me of samurai movies.
1: Yeah. The music helps. Well, it's different music, but it's that same kind of like, it sets the tone, that music.
2: Yeah, you're right, because they are actually many times taken from those early Japanese samurai movies. You could take the plot or storyline and instead of swords or whatever, it, you use guns. You, you're right. It, it's very derivi- derivative of those samurai movies. And I suppose the modern
0: day equivalent, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. And, you know, I, I like film. I'm assuming you do, too. I know Bobo's seen a lot of stuff. Um, but the this isn't film, it's television, I guess. But the modern day equivalent, I think, of that is arguably The Mandalorian.
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I watched that and I was like, Man, this is like a space spaghetti Western. It was so, so much like that. And he, even the way he doesn't talk much, you know, again, if you watch the spaghetti Westerns, especially like Clint Eastwood in, in those, he doesn't say much, if anything. And The Mandalorian was very much like that. So, yeah, you're dead on. That is, that is the modern version of that um, sort of movie making format.
0: Yeah, space spaghetti we- Western, I suppose. <laughs> Space and of course they're begging it too because they they put that that whistle thing in there and they're they're clearly making a very strong connection um but yeah I would agree with you and it makes sense that that you would grab onto that for ghoul town because you there is a western flair to your songs
2: right and it made sense because when you know I used to be in other bands they uh, did did you know did quite well and stuff but they were they were always more you know, it was a metal band or a punk band and I wanted to do something that was very unique. So at some point I kind of put all that in a blender and wanted to do something that was closer to my Texas roots, but was also kind of my vibe of dark and spooky. So, you know, we just started wearing black hats and black sort of punk Western stuff and took a lot of that influence from spaghetti Westerns and mixed that with sort of the horror and monster type thing to create ghoul town. And, for better or worse, it's, it's so unique that people say, well, you know, what kind of music do you play? I'm like, I don't know what you call it. It's, you know, it's just ghoul town and you just have to hear it and uh, whether people like it or not, you know, you, you remember, if you've seen the band, you, you remember what we look like and sort of that sound, you know, you're so
0: lucky to have cool adjectives and a cool vibe. I think you called it dark and spooky. I mean, my vibe is awkward and nerdy, you know, you're, you're a lucky guy.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a nerd I'm a nerd at heart. I just uh learned how to I, I well see my dad my dad was really cool. So he had he had this black hat that looked like the character of the bad in the good, the bad and the ugly. And he you know, he was a hunter and all this stuff, so and I would wear that hat around the house. So I kind of Learn how to yeah, this stuff looks cool, and you know I'll grow this kind of black pointy mustache that I have all that came from all that influence from those movies, and it you know it's sort of my my nerd um <laughs> my nerd at the core i i can uh, you know translated that into some some fashion or something like Ghoul town Or coding dark and dark and spooky over it. <laughs> Which I still remember. One of the things that I always remember a lot is is when we shot the Finding Bigfoot episode in Falk, FAU- the Return to Boggy Creek one. And when uh, y'all were like, yeah, do do your uh, Sasquatch howl or whatever, and I did it, and Bobo goes, ghoulish. <laughs> <laughs> and I always, you know, sometimes I'll like, like if somebody like my one of my guys were out in the woods or whatever, they'll do a howl, I'll say, Dude,
1: that was ghoulish. <laughs> <laughs> right of, I'm, I'm honored you're quoting me.
2: Yeah, man, it, that that was that worked and it was it was cool. So I don't know
0: if that's Was how- it in the episode the, did they cut it out or was it in the episode? It's in the episode. Yeah. They oh, okay. It. Class. So you mentioned earlier that um that you're writing another book, and I, I don't think I knew this, probably because I haven't seen you for a long time. I, I guess I don't even know when the last time I saw you was maybe Woolheater's Texas Conference or something. Just, we haven't been overlapping in a lot of our gigs lately, so I haven't had a chance to see you and catch up. So you're writing another book. Any, can you tell us anything about that? Like how far along are you, the subject matter, or anything you want to share? Uh,
2: yes, I, I have yet to talk about this. And one reason you don't know is because it's kind of been something that I just started writing recently. I've, I've kind of... Well, I took some time to develop the podcast, and then um, I worked on some other stuff I... I I put out my monster sauce, hot sauce, and that became a whole deal. It oh, we ended, haven't even uh, talked about that. Huge fan, by the way. Got the new
0: bottles today in the museum. Today they uh, we put them on the shelves.
2: So awesome, yeah. And that, yeah. Now I have the second flavor. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I was kind of in between. I was like, "What do I do next for a book?" And I was trying to get some ideas, but. Um, It just sort of, like, after I developed the podcast and recorded a couple episodes, I thought, okay, now I'm good on that. They're going to come out. And I just got this spark of inspiration and said, you know what? I need to write, and there's no book on this, I need to write the definitive Texas Bigfoot book. And so... You know, obviously oh, yeah. I have a lot of the information of research stuff personally where I have collected all these newspaper articles and know all, you know, Craig Woolheater and all those guys that have been involved. And I thought, you know, I'd I'd like to just do that. And when um, Craig Woolheater was talking about, you know, the possibility of opening a Texas Bigfoot museum and um, I thought, you know, we need a book, you know, and 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 so I started just pounding that thing out, and it has gone quite well. I mean, I'm very far along with it, and that's usually how it works. When I get the inspiration, okay, I'm going to write an album. I'm going to write a book. When I once I get the idea, then I then I roll. So this this is the first I've said of it. So there there it is, and now everybody knows. So I think it's fantastic.
1: That's a great idea. It's great, yeah, dude. Yeah, you know how to put out the hits, Lyle. That's for sure.
2: Well, hopefully so. And I mean, I, th- there is so much to Texas; such a big place, and there's there's so much good, uh, great Bigfoot cases that have occurred here over the years. I mean, I couldn't even. I mean, really, it would take two or three books to to include everything. So I've really got the best of the best, and what I consider the iconic, you know, stories, cases, and and some of the best credible sightings. So. Hopefully, you know it'll be something that uh, people will enjoy.
0: You know, just just this past week, um, I, I did a TV like this one of these one off TV shoots or whatever. So you know, where they show a clip of something and they have a talking head talking about it. Um, and the, one of the older Bigfoot cases from Texas came up, and um, it, the you probably know about it because you're writing a book on it. The Wild Woman of Navidad. Are you familiar yes, with that one? I am. Yeah. yeah now. When I went back and read the articles, this, the articles are in the in the 1920s. seemed to refer to stuff in the 1880s. Some of the stuff seemed Bigfoot related. Some of the stuff seemed like just you know like uh, maybe in, indigenous people raiding you know settlements and stealing food for their family, or or like uh, people who are just living out in the wilds doing the same thing. Um, and they seemed human, but in other cases they didn't. Um, do you have any comments on that case, the Wild Woman of Navidad?
2: Yes, that that's pretty much the oldest possible Bigfoot story from Texas, and I have the original newspaper articles that were circulated um, that talk about, you know, that those incidents. And yeah, it, it's hard it's hard to determine if they're talking about like a feral person like you say, an indigenous person or somebody living in the woods, or whether it was actually, you know, a hair-covered upright creature. Because one of the, you know, witnesses said that it was running upright and it was covered in hair. And then the other ones seemed to imply that it was doing things like uh, collecting, stealing stuff from people's homes. And And then
0: returning it, right? Returning it later?
2: Am I... Am I misremembering mis- mis- that? Uh, they found – well, they found the stuff. They found like a little cave and they found some of that stuff um, out there as far as I know. And um, I, I seem to remember them like uh, uh, tools were being stolen,
0: but then they would be returned in better shape than when they were stolen. Like, like sharpened knives and cleaned off hammers and things like that.
2: Right. Yeah, there the was just stuff like that that was like eh. – it's all sort of blended up in this story where people were trying to, you know, it starts with they see footprints, they see glimpses of this, I guess, the female-looking thing coming out of the woods. Um, and, and all those sort of go in that sort of category of those old newspaper articles are a little bit untrustworthy and a little bit unclear. So all, the best we can say is this: these are possibly Bigfoot stories. And, you know, there's that one, there's some others from the 1800s around, there was a sort of a case around Austin, Texas, which is kind of not normal Bigfoot country. Um, and a few more where, you know, they're great to include and sort of lead off and in, in say, you know, tales of you know, possible ape-like, bigfoot-like creatures in Texas date back many, many years. And here's some newspaper articles that talk about that and then move forward. Obviously, the more you go on, the more people, the the even the newspapers simply told what it was. They weren't so fanciful about the
0: writing. So you said you're pretty far along in the book at this point. Do you have an expected publication date or a vague, like by the end of summer, for example, or – Or do you have any idea when it's going to be out and available for the public?
2: My target really is going to be October to have it out. Mm. And that's kind of a long lead time. But one thing I want to do here is once I finish it, you know, among my schedule and then also doing the podcast, I want to do some maps for it, some really nice maps that show you the areas where I'm kind of, talking about because I had to break it up into sort of areas because Texas is so diverse that on one side, you know, in the West, you have basically an arid trans Pecos desert. And then you get over in the East and it's this, you know, piney woods, dense, thicketed forest. So it's like you have all these, this terrain, which is difficult. Where do you, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of break this up so it makes sense in the book. And so, as I go with the little sections where I talk about cases in the area, then I'm going to have maps that show people. So if you're not, you know, if you're not familiar with Texas or you don't live here or you, you know, it's so big that way people can kind of follow along and look, okay, here's this area. And then they, you know, I can say, Oh, you know, I know that I live there or I've visited there. Or I got cousins there. They can follow along with, with the geography.
1: Yeah. Cause people have no idea. Everyone thinks of, you know, Texas, you tumbleweeds, you know, pra- just classic desert, and then but a third of the state is it's it's swamps. It's it's like the Louisiana bayous. It's alligators. It's I mean, it's it's the full bayou country.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people wouldn't even realize there's swamps in Texas, you know, and you know, like you said, I mean, it eventually blends into Louisiana, where we all think of it as a bayou uh, state. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the things in the book, and I had to kind of preface some of the stuff. It's like, okay, you wouldn't normally think a Bigfoot would be seen in the middle of, of this type of habitat, but here's a pretty darn credible case or witnesses reporting something weird. So, um, you know, I had to kind of explain all these places.
0: I've said it a lot. One of my big takeaway lessons from doing Finding Bigfoot for all, all those years is that Bigfoots don't really care about what people expect. They just go where they go and, you know, people need to adjust their expectations. You know, if you, if you look at uh, South Dakota, you know, the Pine, you know, um, Pine Ridge or something like that, you go, why would there be Bigfoots here? It's a plains. It, there, it, we're a long ways from the mountains, the Black Hills. But sure enough, they're there. They're down in these, like, gnarly sort of thorny crevices and whatever. And they're seen at night walking over the plains to get from one river bottom to the other. Um, Bigfoots find a way. You know, they're very, very adaptable. So I imagine, I mean, if they're in New Mexico, you know, why wouldn't they be in parts of Texas like that? Right. So, man, we've talked about your podcast. We've talked about um, your band, your upcoming book. You briefly mentioned your hot sauce. I mean, okay. And I guess the final thing that we need to talk about are, do you have any appearances this year? I don't, I don't think we're on a gig together this year, are we?
2: Don't know. I don't, we haven't had as many together, um, which you know, I miss you, man. I know. it's. I'm, I'm always excited when I see you guys on, on one of the shows and get to catch up and talk. Um, well, where will you be? Where, where
0: can people see you and meet you in person? And...
2: I've got quite a few coming up. Um, it's on your website. Yeah, loudblackburner.com There's a list of the events. Um, I've got the Falk Monster Festival in June in Falk. Um, let's see. I'm doing Michigan Bigfoot Conference in July. Of course, the Texas Bigfoot Conference in October. Uh, I'll be at Mothman in September. So, good assortment, which is a lot of travel back and forth. And I've even got one, a cryptid event in Virginia this year, which is the first for that one.
0: You know, that Texas conference, that's Wool Heaters, right, in October? Right. Yeah, you know, that, that might be a great, you know, book release party if, if uh, your your timeline is correct.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And that way I don't have to push myself. It seems like that's a good enough lead time that I know I can get it done and, and get keep up with everything else. So I don't thought, okay, but I definitely want to have it out at the Texas conference and have books there because if I don't and I've announced it, then people will revolt. So I got to have it then.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and people are revolting enough. Yeah. <laughs> There's enough that's a It's happen. a Mel Brooks joke, by the way. So <laughs> I can't take credit for that one. <laughs> Well Lyle thank you so much for coming back on Bigfoot and Beyond a second time. You're part of a very small exclusive club now. We really really appreciate your time and I I I thought I thought I was busy. I mean Bobo started with this this podcast said, "Hey Cliff, you're busy." But apparently not. Apparently not. I have a lot of free <laughs> time apparently compared to you. So thank you for um carving out a little bit of time for us to tell us about what we have
1: going on. Yeah, thanks Lyle. We really appreciate you being here especially knowing how busy you are. That oh, was nice of you to take the time out to have a little chat with us and tell us what's going on in your world.
2: Absolutely. I always enjoy talking to you guys. So anytime I'm I'm available. We'll have you back on the third time at some point, I'm sure.
0: Because we don't know that many people, frankly. But you always have stuff going on too. So all right, Lyle, you take it easy, man. Nice talking to you. Adios, amigo. Adios. Man, Bubs. Again, I thought you said that I was busy, but nothing compared to Lyle. How does he? How does he sound so calm all the time? I know, because he's in the eye of the storm. That's why. I think it's just one of those. I know that when I get really stressed out and frantic about stuff, I have to, I consciously or subconsciously have to slow down, and my my speaking becomes more smooth and slow. And maybe that's what we're seeing because, like, I, I feel less stressed after talking to Lyle for the last hour.
1: Well, he's never rattled, even when he's telling like an exciting story. He's still got that smooth, calm delivery. Yeah, smooth. (laughs) Something about that guy. I just love him. Yeah, uh, he's great. We're we're just like the women. (laughs) I
0: suppose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I suppose. All right, folks. Well, check out LyleBlackburn.com. He's got cool stuff on there, and you can see where he's going to appear or buy his books or hot sauce. And until next week, oh, we got a great guest next week, Cliff, too. I'll surprise you with that one. But until next week, folks, keep it squatchy.